You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English. And today, we are also joined by Dr. Matthew Barrett. Dr. Barrett is Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is also the founder and executive editor of Credo Magazine. He's the author of numerous books, including Simply Trinity, The Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Spirit, None Greater, The Undomesticated Attributes of God, and God's Word Alone, The Authority of Scripture. Dr. Barrett, welcome to Knowing Faith. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Now, I just got to remind the audience, our season sponsor uh, for this season, our season sponsor for next season as well, is Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I was telling Dr. Allen about this, Dr. Barrett, whenever I had him on in one of our many episodes, the faculty that you guys are building up over at Midwestern is strong. Like, it's been really cool to see just that seminary have like a kind of a new life when Dr. Allen got there and just transitioning the school and now looking at the roster of faculty there, it's like there are heavy hitters at Midwestern uh, and it's really encouraging to see. So I don't know if it feels like something unique is happening over there, but from an outsider's perspective, it certainly seems that way. No, that's so encouraging to hear. Uh, Yeah, it's, it's been great to be part of, I'm going on my, uh, well, sixth year at uh, Midwestern. So it's been a real privilege and then to see other faculty come on, and uh, I think there's, if I could say one thing, I think there's a great um, collaborative spirit uh, amidst the faculty, and that just makes it makes it so much better than when trying to teach students. Now, Dr. Barrett, we've been doing Doctrine of God this season, and uh, have you have you ever considered the Doctrine of God professionally, <laughs> academically? I, it's on it's on my bucket list. Okay. Uh, <laughs> So I couldn't come up with just one thing I wanted to talk about with you. So we're kind of treating this as a bit of a roundup episode, okay? So the questions are going to be kind of come in here, there, and everywhere. Uh, I've told, for the audience, I've told Dr. Barrett, trend more technical in this episode, and we'll call him back from the, the horizon if we get too far out there. But Jen, I know you wanted to start with a question concerning not simply Trinity, but none greater. Yeah, I'm always curious what why people write the books that they write, and for that book in particular, and for the title choice in particular. And I know that authors don't always get to choose their titles, so I'd be curious if you chose the title, uh, and if so, why, and what motivated you to write um, write your book on the attributes of God? Jen, you sound like uh, an author yourself who has some inside uh, info <laughs> <laughs> how the process works. Yeah, you know, sometimes uh, titles just flow right out, and other times it's a wrestling match. Uh-huh. But with this title, I don't know that there could have been a different title because uh, I start the book out t- talking about my story, and I describe how uh, I was just a young uh, young man in college. Uh, had been a Christian for many years, read my Bible backwards and forwards, but had never actually considered theology or, or even been given the opportunity to consider theology. And uh, as I explained, there was a, a really beautiful young woman uh, that uh, I thought, goodness, I would love to marry her one day. (laughs) And she gave me, well, she started asking me questions 
about theology. And I was so embarrassed because I didn't know the answers. <laughs> and she's thinking through these deep, deep uh, questions about God and the problem of evil. And, and I was just, I was just speechless. And so she gave me a copy of Augustine's Confessions. And it wasn't long after that that I stumbled across Anselm, one of my favorite uh, thinkers, uh, and uh, his little books where he contemplates who God is. And as I was reading Augustine and then Anselm, I came across this phrase that said, where Anselm said, God is someone than whom none greater can be conceived. Mm -hmm. Then he went on from there to talk about, well, if God is this perfect being, uh, what perfect perfections must be true? And I, 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 I put down uh, my copy and I just thought, I don't think I've been introduced to God in this way. And so, you know, many, many years later, as I sat down to write on the attributes of God, and, and, of course, what Anselm's saying comes right out of the prophets and mm-hmm. their description of God. I, I just couldn't get away from this title, uh, None Greater. It, it really captured the spirit of the book, but it also captured the content in, in so many ways. I love that. I love that. Just out of curiosity, uh, that woman— Yeah, what happened uh, with you, the girl? What, this is a this is a rom this is a rom com. Okay, okay. I was about to say this is a rom com that I definitely need an ending to. Okay. Yeah. No. Uh, I did end up marrying her, and so she okay. was uh, she was very patient. Uh, and honestly, to this day, uh, you know, I, I don't think I ever could have imagined at a time, you know, being a theologian. But to this day, so much of my journey goes right back to some of those early years. So don't uh, don't underestimate how this great God um, might work in your life in unexpected ways. Mm. Wow, man! For our single just, listeners, just, what you you don't need a dating website. You need the attributes <laughs> of God. Yeah, mm-hmm. and Anselm. I was thinking of like that rom com wouldn't be fifty first dates. It could be called fifty first pages. You know oh, what I'm saying, Kyle. <laughs> Come Who can on. make it through um, 50 pages of Anselm? That's my requirement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I love that. Okay, so on the on the note of the attributes of God, um, let's start here. We've been talking about attributes of God this season, incommunicable and communicable. And I want you to try to take us towards the deep waters here. Is an attribute of God something God has or something God is? It's definitely who God is. And that word is, it's just one word, but it makes all the difference. When we look at the world around us, and when we look at ourselves, right, we are very complex individuals. And by that, I don't mean, you know, complicated, though that's true as well. But we are what theologians call compounded by parts. We are made up of parts. And uh, we are even at times at risk of uh, being greater or lesser at any point in our existence. When we talk about God, though, he's altogether different. Um, He's not made up of parts like we are. Um, It's not as if, just to take one example, let's just take love. It's not as if God must become loving, as if he was less loving a minute ago and uh, has to add this to himself, right? As if it's something he must have somehow. Uh, That very much describes us as creatures. But when we talk about God, uh, 
he doesn't just have love or become loving, or he certainly is not moved in some way to change from being less loving to more loving. Rather, uh, as John says in his first letter, God is love. And when we say that, we really mean it. Um, the, the technical word for this is divine simplicity. It doesn't mean that God is you know, easy to understand. Uh, rather, the incomprehensible God that we are speaking of is without parts. Um, one of the reasons this is so important is because there's nothing that precedes him. There's nothing that he, he has no composer himself uh, like we do. And for that reason, uh, he is a God uh, who is life, eternal life, in and of himself. And as you can tell, this has real implications for salvation. You think of Jesus and this, the Samaritan woman. Uh, why is it that he can actually offer her eternal life, not by going to some other source, but by coming to himself? It's because he actually is eternal life in and of himself. Uh, to, to introduce some more, uh, you know, technical vocabulary, uh, we might say God is pure actuality. He is pure act. This was a phrase that the church has used consistently through the ages. Uh, one way to think of it is like this. God is so alive. He is so complete. Uh, he lacks, he, he has no deficiency. He lacks nothing. Um he is maximally alive. Well, if that's the case, then he never has to be changed or acted upon or moved by something or someone external to himself. Uh, he is life without measure, which is very different from us. When we talk about our existence, we're not pure act. Uh, we're, we are uh, very much characterized by what theologians call a passive potency, um, we have potential that has to be activated in order to be brought to completion. And we know that. We feel that in, in our very bones uh, as we look at our own existence, our, um, especially when we're facing, say, death in the face. One of the things that I think would be helpful when we're thinking about doctrines, whether it's uh, kind of theological uh, prolegomena, uh, theology proper, Trinitarianism, divine simplicity, is thinking about what, what do we lose if this isn't true, mm -hmm. right? Fair. And so in, in kind of the theological world right now, we there's a lot of conversations around divine simplicity, attacks upon divine simplicity, saying that it's unnecessary. It's actually kind of more platonic ideas that came after that aren't biblical ideas. Tell me what we lose if we lose the doctrine of simplicity. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a, a very perceptive question because I think we actually lose everything. Mm -hmm. um, if God is not simple, then we really do risk domesticating God uh, so that, yes, he may be greater than us, but he's not all that different from us. Uh, this has become very common in the last two centuries in particular. Uh, there's been different labels thrown on this. Some have used the label theistic mutualism or theistic personalism. Others have used a uh, uh, very much a, an oxymoron like, monopolytheism. Uh, what, what do they mean by that? Well, they're describing the God of modern theology in, in, in very broad strokes to say, well, yes, uh, this God is one. So it, it, in that sense, there's a, a retention of Christianity. But nonetheless, in the, at the end of the day, he's not all that different 
from the types of gods we see in the polytheistic religions. These are gods that are very much uh, composed by, by something or even affected or changed by something external to themselves. Uh, well, uh, you know, these are gods, you know, Michael Horton has a great way of saying this. He says at one point, um, you know, these are gods that might feel comforting to us at, at first, but they're not gods that, that we would actually worship in the end. Um, I think it's actually at the heart of uh, the Old Testament. When you look at, say, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 40 through 45, for example, what do we see there when God's mocking the idolatry, almost the irrationality of the idolatry that, he, that Israel is so tempted by? This is at the heart of it. What is it that separates Yahweh from these idols? And behind the, you know, underneath the surface is this doctrine of simplicity. Um, God is without a composer. He is not divided within himself. Uh, he doesn't have to become his attributes more or less at any point. And as you can tell, everything else attaches to this or follows from it. Uh, so even think about time. Uh, if God has to become something more than he is, well, that assumes that he's experiencing a duration of moments and he's temporal uh, in some sense. Um, uh, it also would preclude, uh, say, mutability. Well, if he's in time, then he must have to change with each succession of moments. Well, that would be quite catastrophic mm -hmm. then for a God who Scripture says does not change. We could, we could keep going. I mean, aseity would be another one. Does God depend on anything um, outside of himself? Or is he self-existent and self-sufficient? Is he actually life in and of himself? Well, that too depends on simplicity. If he's made up of parts in some way or a composition of attributes that are all you know, different and severed from one, separate from one another, uh, that raises the question of whether God is actually depending on something else to compose who he is. So it sounds technical, but behind this is the spirit of the Bible itself. How do we actually distinguish between Yahweh and the idols of the nations so that God doesn't, in the end, he's not a glorified picture of, ourse picture of ourselves, just bigger and better? So would you would you say this is I'm going to say a statement. Tell me if you agree or disagree. To forfeit divine simplicity isn't to forfeit a secondary doctrine. It's to forfeit the godness of God. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. And that phrase, the godness of God, uh, is is right at the heart of it. Uh, if we forfeit divine simplicity, I would argue we're actually forfeiting Christian orthodoxy itself. Right now, that sounds like a bold claim. But, I mean, we could get into other discussions of the Trinity, you know, if, if, you know, we had time and we would see, well, we actually can't even have a Trinity without the doctrine of divine simplicity. Uh, in other words, when we uh, affirm, say, the Nicene Creed, that uh, this is the Son uh, who's consubstantial, who's co-equal with the Father, who's begotten from the Father's very essence. When we say things like this, that he's true God from true God, he's light from light, all this biblical imagery coming through, uh, what's behind that? It's simplicity. Uh, this is the Son uh, who is, uh, he's not of a different essence or lesser in some way than the Father and the Holy Spirit. But to say that, we assume, well, then the persons can't be parts uh, that are divided from from one another. That's right. So let me ask you this. 
when we talk about some of these attributes, love, for example, how does saying that God is love or that God, uh, God's, God, uh, that God is love or that God loves, how does that not challenge the doctrine of impassibility? Mm. Does God have an emotional life? Yeah. If he doesn't, then how does saying God loves you mean anything? Yeah, uh, very good question. I need you uh, to doctor. convince Kyle of impassibility real quick. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. That's, that's what we're doing here. Wait, I'll let me tell get you, some, Car- I got to get some popcorn. I'll be right back. I've been standing on this wall for a long time, Matt. And if you could join me on it, I would appreciate it. <laughs> I will tell you, this is, I asked this question selfishly because if there is, if there's one part of the classical doctrine of God that I feel like my hackles get raised with, that I feel sympathetic, sympathetic to arguments against and skeptical of arguments for, yeah. it's impassibility. Okay. Yeah. It's because you're just a big softy, Kyle. That's, yeah. I guess, must be what it is. Well, maybe the first thing I should say then, because uh, because it's such a big uh, topic, is for listeners, if you want a great uh, short article that is very accessible, uh, I don't think you can do any better than Thomas Wynandy, his essay on first things. It's simply called, Does God Suffer? Question uh, mark. You can find it on the internet. It is spectacular. And, and Kyle, to your question, it really digs deep into like what has happened even culturally in the last century and a half that makes us suspicious and maybe leads us to ask some of the, the, the wrong questions. And so I, I can't recommend that enough. But, uh, you know, I don't want to punt it entirely. <laughs> so let me just get to the heart of it. Um, first of all, I think it's por- important to recognize a historical, you know, vantage point here. When we say this as Protestants in particular, we really are linking arms with the Church Catholic, uh, small c, Catholic meaning universal, and we actually see this even in our own Protestant uh, confessions. And so, if you look at, say, the Westminster Confession, or if you're a Baptist like I am, you may love the uh, the London Baptist Confession and others, you'll see it right there in the text uh, as something that they consider absolutely essential to uh, their affirmation of God. Uh, They will use language that's really foreign to us today. They will say God is without parts, so that, you know, we touched on that with simplicity, but they will say God's without parts or passions. Now, to understand what they mean, you got to know what what passions are, okay? So, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier Augustine. Augustine has this great sentence where he says, God is without any change in himself as he is making changeable things, uh, and yet all the while undergoing nothing. Uh, What does Augustine mean there? Well, uh, he's describing the creator in contrast to the creature, and he's essentially saying God is without passions. Now, passions what are they? Well, passions exist whenever uh, a finite creature like you or me is acted upon, uh, affected by, or even changed by something external to ourselves, to, to just put it very bluntly. And so where there are passions, there is a change that occurs uh, within due to, say, a feeling or an emotion that, that moves you. Uh, now, it could move you either towards the good or towards the evil, so, you know, I to make this real to listeners, and I apologize uh, if you're on the wrong team here, but I am a Kansas City Chiefs fan. 
Gross. And if you know, if you ever watch the Kansas City Chiefs, they drive you crazy, don't they? Because, um, you know, they'll come out and Patrick Mahomes will throw this 50-yard pass and, you know, Kelsey runs it in for a touchdown. And, and if, if you're at my house, you're, you're like jumping for joy. You're screaming at the TV. You know, you're trying not to, to get too excited to scare the kids, that sort of thing. And then, of course, you know, the next quarter comes and uh, it's, it's, it's like, what happened? <laughs> Where mm. did they go? And uh, they're losing. And, and it, you know, if, you're, if you come and join me, I, I'm depressed. I'm lounging on the couch. I, I, I'm hopeless and so on and so on. Well, uh, these are passions at play in, in me. And, and, and uh, we experience this all the time, actually. Uh, we go to church and someone says to us as we walk in through the door, something really encouraging. And man, we think God is great. Christianity is great. I'm ready to sing. And then we turn around the next minute and we overhear someone gossiping about, about us. And it, it, it maybe it even is slanderous. And next, next thing you know, that it's like our balloon's been popped and we're, we're just deflated. In other words, we're overcome in a sense because of the passions that exist. Now, passions aren't necessarily sinful they are simply a movement of your soul and so uh, and that certainly can affect your body right so you could start crying or you could be tears of joy or tears of grief um they're they're not necessarily sinful but they certainly are creaturely that's the point because we're insufficient in and of ourselves um we're dependent in nature in fact we're made to be that way we're made to be very dependent creatures we're very needy and so passions reveal our dependency sometimes even our deficiency because we are affected and as a consequence we experience a certain emotional fluctuation sometimes for better sometimes for worse now i know that's a long description there um but passions are very appropriate for us though they can go wrong they're very appropriate for us but they're not appropriate for god and you probably can guess why, given everything I've said, because if we go back to our description of God, well, God is life in and of himself. He is complete. And so he's never in, he's not needy like we are. He's not dependent like we are. He never needs to be acted upon, moved, affected, actualized in some way to be moved towards the good or uh, instead of the evil. So all that to say, when we say God is impassable, we are simply denying these sort of deficiencies and limitations of God. A, a positive way to put it, since you mentioned love, is actually to say, if God is not impassable, we can't actually say what John says in his first letter. Uh, for us, uh, I have to be moved to become loving. <laughs> uh, maybe I'm loving today and then tomorrow uh, I'm not or I'm less so. And I have to be activated to become loving again. Um, and even in those situations, love is something I'm trying to grasp onto. It's something I'm trying to improve at. It's something I'm trying to contain and even mature. Uh, but none of this is true of God. He could not be more loving than he is from all eternity. And so as counterintuitive as it may seem, uh, without impassibility, uh, God is not love itself. Um, so one of the ways I like to put this, especially to students or churchgoers, is if simplicity is true and God is his attributes, his essence is his attributes and his attributes is his essence, uh, he's not divided by parts, then in comes other attributes like immutability and certainly impassibility so that we can actually say and mean it 
God loves you from all eternity and his love will never waver. To say that, though, you have to believe in not just an immutable God, but a God who is impassable. The CSB Life Council Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is Seminary President Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. All right, so I got two questions for you, Matt, related to that. Thanks for that, by the way. I agree with everything you just said. Kyle, come on. Come on in. The water's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, th- 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 I think... I want to ask you a systematic theology question and just a biblical theology question related to impassibility. Because I think, and I'm going to actually ask the first one first, uh, what do we do with all the language that seems to communicate that God is passionate? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, well, let's just take a, a great test case. First um, Samuel 15, right? Here's a great incident. Um, so to, to listeners who may or may not know the context, uh, this is a pivotal point in the story of Israel, right? I mean, this Saul has been commanded by God to put the to put um, the opposition to death, and of course he doesn't. He doesn't obey God. He keeps some for himself, and then he tries to justify his actions, right? I mean, it gets worse. This so reminds us of <laughs> ourselves, right? He, he uses God and and even spirituality itself to say, "Oh, you know, I was saving some of those animals to sacrifice them to you." <laughs> uh, and Samuel confronts Saul, right? It's this. It's a pretty devastating moment, and um, but it's a and, and essentially says to Saul, Saul, God has taken the kingdom from you. Now, what is so interesting, kind of bookends to this whole narrative, is towards the beginning we actually see God say to Samuel, "I regret that I made Saul king." Okay, well, I guess the question at that point is, what do you do with that language? Right. I, I suppose you could interpret it in a literalistic way, though. Uh, that what would that mean? Uh, God realizes he made a mistake. Uh, God realizes he well things didn't work out with Paul with uh, Saul. Now I've got to I got to figure something else out. You see, uh, so right off the bat, we're put in a in a situation where we can't in, just interpret any type of language as if it just means for God what it means for us, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, would, it would create massive problems for what the rest of what Scripture does say about God, that he is a God uh, who does not change, for example. Okay, so what then does 
God mean? Why would he use this language? Well, I think in one sense, it's a beautiful way of God, as Calvin said, John Calvin, of God accommodating himself to our understanding. Uh, John Calvin said, uh, Scripture is oftentimes like a nurse, and God's like a nurse. Uh, When he speaks, he lisps to us like a newborn baby. Language like this is meant to do that because I think what, what is happening is, is, I mean, think of it this way. What is the strongest language in our human experience that would express a, a very stern, complete dissatisfaction with, with something evil that has occurred? Well, this might be one of the words that we choose. So it is trying to communicate in one sense, uh, God is absolutely opposed to you, Saul, because of your wickedness. It is that wicked. Mm-hmm. Now, Another check is in place because if you finish the passage, Saul, he tries to treat Yahweh like he would treat one of the gods of the nations. Again, these are gods that are passable and mutable. And so Saul thinks, well, I could maybe manipulate God and get him to change his mind, get him to shift emotionally. And this was a, a, a terrible misstep on Saul's part. Remember, he even grabs on the Samuel's robe and rips it. And essentially what Saul or uh, what Samuel says to Saul is, who do you think God is? He's not a man <laughs> that, that he would change his mind. So right there in the text is, is almost a, a helpful way of Scripture, interpreting Scripture. It, it actually correcting any type of limitation that might creep in our mind when we think about God. Uh, this helps us, I think, Whenever we work through any passage of Scripture, we always want to read it in light of the whole, rather than kind of having tunnel vision and interpreting any word or any verse in a way that actually would contradict uh, the whole counsel of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, uh, JT, am I cutting you off here? Well, I was going to, you know, I, don't, I was going to ask a second question. I don't need to, but I'll just maybe reference another article that I think helps because if God is impassable, which I believe that He is, or maybe another way to phrase it, if he isn't, it makes the incarnation null and void. Uh, as we move kind of from the doctrine of simplicity and God's transcendence, now moving to thinking about the Trinitarian nature of God and the eternal Son of God taking upon human flesh. Wesley Hill has an article also in First Things called The Impassable God, and he phrases it this way. He says, because the Christian God is radically transcendent and impassable, therefore God can take upon human nature to himself without displacing it or destroying it. And because the transcendent God has taken a human nature to himself in the Son, the suffering which God undergoes in that nature is redemptive rather than simply passive victimhood and solidarity with us. So I think there's a great connection here between divine simplicity, impassibility, transcendence, and the God who comes to rescue us in Christ. Yeah. Mm. Dr. Barrett, I want to change directions a little bit here. We've discussed on the show before, but... Could you give a brief explanation of the doctrine of eternal functional subordination of the sun and then what you think of it? <laughs> Kyle believes that too. You're we're, safe this is a podcast here. We're just trying totally, to bring Kyle back. Yes, you're totally safe. No, I'm here. no I'm I'm definitely familiar <laughs> with I'm definitely familiar with what you've said about it. I'm trying to this is something that we've hit like a gong as hard as we can, as much as we can. And I'm trying to tee off a tee up a giant size softball yeah, for you softball. to just go yard on this. Next we're gonna ask you your views on the age of the earth and how you feel about the death penalty <laughs> and uh yeah. <laughs> Divorce and remarriage. Yeah, yeah. yeah. not a problem. I, I'm glad. I'm I'm happy to address this. And you know, m- my 
my stance towards it is no secret anyways. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, listeners, if, if, if they pick up uh, Simply Trinity uh, towards the end of that book, I think it's chapter eight, I actually devote an entire chapter. So if what I say here is just, uh, you know, falling short and, and feels just uh, almost like a, just a sneak peek, uh, you, you'll find a lot there to, to dig into. Yeah, I, this has been a popular um, view among some evangelicals um, in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, uh, sometimes very prominent evangelicals, uh, who have argued that uh, the way we should think of the, the Trinity is actually in terms of roles and relationships. Now, that itself actually is, is not very groundbreaking because uh, in, in one sense, if you look at the 20th century, um, using social categories like this to talk about the Trinity became, uh, I don't know if I can say this on this show, but it became quite sexy. <laughs> uh, it became very popular. It became the sure. thing to do among uh, modern theologians. I don't, I don't know how much advocates of, of uh, EFS, as we might call it, are, are aware of that, but it, it certainly is in the air uh, that we breathe. It, it just has become the vocabulary. Uh, but what's so different about EFS is that it uses this social understanding of, of the Trinity. And by social, I mean uh, it understands persons in, in a way that's very relational uh, in terms of relationships of give and take. Uh, it understands the Trinity more as a social uh, co community. Um, but what's so different about EFS is it actually moves a step further and says, well, what kind of social roles and relationships are we referring to? It's actually one of hierarchy. Uh, and by that, they mean... They, and they say this very explicitly, that the Father is actually a greater authority and even glory um, and power, et cetera, et cetera, than the Son. Now, they're very quick to qualify themselves and say that, um, of course, uh, the Father and the Son are still equal in essence. Not, we're, we're talking about their roles. Uh, so they're equal in essence, but the Son is subordinate or submissive in his role as son, and that is actually essential, even person-defining to who the son is and likewise to who the father is. We could go further and even talk about the Holy Spirit, which they would then put down, they would say is functionally lower still. All that to say these relations of authority and submission are actually uh, defining for the Trinity. And so for the longest time, they would say things like, you, you really cannot have a father, son, without these. Uh, this is what actually distinguishes them. Now, in more recent days, they've nuanced that a little bit because it used to be the case that they would uh, actually take this even further. And so they would look at, say, the Nicene Creed and its affirmation of uh, the, the Son's eternal generation, that the Son is begotten from the Father from all eternity, and they would criticize it and reject it. More recently, they have affirmed it, but, but there's a catch. Uh, they actually use it now to further uh, solidify and substantiate this functional hierarchy in the Trinity to say, well, uh, the Son's 
eternal uh, submission or subordination, this functional subordination to the Father, it actually flows out of this eternal generation of the Son from the Father. Now, there's another component to this. They then used this as a paradigm or prototype, uh, dependent on what word you want to use, for society. Now, again, I don't think that they recognized this or at least it, uh, admitted it, but this too was very par for the course in the 20th century. I mean, there are just so many examples that you just take off any book on the Trinity from a shelf that's published in the 20th century. And the Trinity, once it's redefined as a, as a social community in terms of roles and relationships, it can be used as a paradigm for just about anything in society. I, I've seen books arguing for a certain political view based on, on uh, the Trinity. I've seen books argue for a certain view of like the environment. Uh, the list is just endless. Uh, even famous theologians like uh, Jurgen Moltmann uh, did this uh, in countless ways um, with, with uh, a certain political theory. EFS comes along and they do this too, except they have a, a different agenda and that is uh, gender. And so they use this in many ways as really a, an ace card in the deck to say, well, uh, this then is the model for, uh, say, a woman submitting uh, to a man. Now, I think they have in mind primarily, say, the church uh, in terms of uh, female to male, but also uh, marriage in particular. And so the Trinity then becomes uh, really the paradigm then for the woman's submission to uh, the husband in that case and his, his authority. Uh, though some have applied it even broader than that to society. Now, that's a very, uh, very brief <laughs> description of EFS. Kyle, do you, should I keep going? Do you want me to, to make? No, I think, I, I, no, I think, no, I think that's good. I think the one thing maybe to land it here would be, why do you find it, why do you find it unpalatable? Like, why do you yeah. find it like uh, concerning? Why would you, why would you dissuade somebody from taking that view that, um, has had some cachet in yeah. evangelicalism. Like, why would you say, like, hey, I would just steer clear of that? Yeah, yeah, I think there's uh, some some really important reasons to stay clear of it. The first one is just, is historical. Though they will argue that this is just orthodoxy, it's just not. I don't know how else to say it. I, I think when you look at the best historians today, they will say EFS is a innovation. Um, this is not this is not what was taught at Nicaea. This is not what was taught by um, the fathers. This is not in line with Christian orthodoxy. When we look at Christian orthodoxy, what how do they describe the Trinity? They don't refer to the persons as persons in relationships like a society. Uh, rather, when they distinguish the persons, what they have in mind is really one thing alone. They say, well, the persons, and this goes back to our conversation of simplicity, the, uh, the persons are uh, one with one another in essence. The one essence subsists in what we call uh, three modes of existence here. And, and here they go on to then describe what that is. Uh, so the father begets the son, though the Son is begotten from the Father from all eternity. Um, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, or we could say is spirated from the Father and the Son, but from all eternity. And so we even see this in the way that Nicaea describes the Trinity. It, on the one hand, will refer to the Son's eternal generation to say, well, this is actually what uh, 
distinguishes the son. This alone distinguishes the son from the father. It's almost too basic to say, right? What, why is the father called father? Why do we have this biblical name of the son as son? Well, it's because to be son means to be begotten. Uh, that's, that's actually what it means, to be begotten from a father. Except this is God we're talking about, so we have to be careful we don't project human limitations. And so they are very quick to say, well, this is the son who's eternally begotten from the father, and this alone distinguishes the son as son. And likewise, we could move to the spirit and say, well, what distinguishes the spirit? It's, the spirit is spirated from the father and the son. But what's really important to notice, and this is where I think EFS goes terribly wrong, is when Nicaea describes what distinguishes the Son, it's always careful to say, well, eternal generation doesn't just distinguish the Son, but it actually safeguards the, the unity and co-equality of the Son with the Father. So yes, the Son is begotten from the Father, but the Son is begotten from the, the very essence of the Father. So where EFS wants to create this divide between, say, essence and like a functional role, that's just very, very foreign to them. Because the very thing that distinguishes the Son also ensures that this Son is co-equal with the Father. Now, there's, a, there's also a, a biblical issue that I think is important to point out here. Um, this, too, is very common in the 20th century. It was very common to look at, say, the Incarnation and project all kinds of things that occur by, by virtue of the humanity of Christ back into the imminent life of God. Uh, Modern theologians love to do this with, guess what, <laughs> passability, suffering. So they would look at the incarnation and say, oh, look at he's suffering. Well, that must mean he's not just suffering by virtue of his humanity, but he's actually suffering in his divinity, and it's not just the Son, it's the Father too. Mm. Uh, the Father too, in some sense, dies when the Son dies on the cross. Uh, EFS takes a similar approach in the sense that they are taking something in the incarnation— for the point of the mission of salvation, the Son humbling himself to the point of death, as Scripture says. And they're projecting that actually onto the Trinity in and of itself, apart from creation. That, I think, is actually a move that does not do justice to the Bible itself. What language, then, should we use? I think we should use the language that Paul uses in Philippians 2, or Hebrews uses, the language of humility. I think that's actually appropriate. That explains, okay, why is the son then submitting himself to the law uh, and, and praying to the Father? Why is he doing all that? Well, it's for, as the creed says, it's for us and our salvation. That's why he's humbled himself and learned obedience, right, as the yeah. scripture says. Mm -hmm. I think the last thing I would say is it comes also down to how we interpret the Bible. Uh, Augustine was really careful here to say, over against a certain subordinationists in his day, he said, you're actually not paying attention to the different ways the Bible uh, instructs us to interpret itself. And so they said, yes, sometimes uh, there are texts that refer to the Son in the form of a servant. But we, that's not everything, because other times there are texts that refer to the Son in the form of God. And still, there's other texts that just refer to the Son being sent by the Father. And Augustine grew really frustrated <laughs> because he said uh, to these subordinations, hey, you're confusing those or you're neglecting one category or the other. Well, if we do that, then yeah, it becomes quite tempting to then just take everything in the form of a servant and project that into everything in terms of a form of God. So all that to say, to be perfectly blunt with you, I think EFS in some, some really unfortunate ways, 
it does come really close to Arianism. Now, it is different than Arianism in certain respects, but uh, nonetheless, even if it is different, EFS is still quite novel. And so I think that should warn us, in a sense, to say, uh, even if this isn't an exact match with, say, that heresy, uh, nonetheless, its innovation is a departure from Christian orthodoxy at the end of the day. Hmm. Yeah. Well, if you find yourself bedfellows with Arianism, probably best to get out of that bed, right? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, we're putting that on a T-shirt, Kyle. Uh, and Merry Christmas, Known Faith uh, listeners. That just became uh, that just became a water bottle. <laughs> oh God, Doctor Barrett, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Really, it's been a delight to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Listen, if you want to find out more about Doctor Barrett, you should check out mbts.edu/knowingfaith. You can find out. Um, how you can study with some great professors over at Midwestern. You should check out Simply Trinity. If you came out of this season and you were like, man, I want some more on this, Simply Trinity or None Greater would be great places to go check out. If you haven't had a chance to look at Credo Magazine, just Google Credo Magazine. You can pull it up and find it out. They're doing some great work over there. If you want to find out more about Knowing Faith, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, If you're listening to this before Christmas, then Merry Christmas. If it's after the New Year, then Happy New Year. Uh, uh, Next season is our 10th season, and it's going to be a blast. We'll see you there. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Grace and peace.